Eli was one of the most sensitive hearts of anyone I've ever met. He was deeply touched by both the creative and the beautiful and the wonderful things about the world, but also deeply touched by injustice. You know, for some kids, that's a bit of a a curse in a way, you know, just to have that burden of the world on his shoulders. But he had a, a big, full, open, kind heart. He was a very sweet, loving child. Eli Weinstock died from unintentional exposure to fentanyl in 2021. Afterwards, his mother, Dr. Beth Weinstock, and his sister, Olivia Weinstock, began Birdie Light, a GPF grantee. In this episode of Good People Talk, Beth and Olivia speak with GPF Executive Director Naomi Eisenberger about moving through their grief to educate youth about fentanyl and its lethality and to save lives and honor Eli's memory. Tell us about that seminal moment in the life of your family and what actually happened to Eli that brought you to where you are today. Sure. Eli was at school at American University and he was doing well. He was a sophomore and he was thriving. Uh, We didn't have any concerns about what was going on in Eli's life. Apparently on March 3rd, the day of his death, he had ingested a substance that we assume to be contaminated with fentanyl. We don't know exactly how that substance made its way into his body. Was it in the form of a pill, a powder? Uh, We don't know how he got it, but it was a lethal dose of fentanyl, and that was his cause of death. Uh, We have every reason to believe that Eli had no idea he was taking fentanyl that day. And in that sense, uh, was essentially a poison for his body. He wasn't prepared for that. And he died, they say, probably instantly. That was what, March of two years ago? 21, yes. 21. So we're coming on two years. And the story that you have shared is a story that since that time has rocketed into everyone's consciousness. Every time I look at a newspaper and I see mention of fentanyl and what it is doing, I, I think about how you were almost really on the cusp of what has become an epidemic. At that time, was this as well known or recognized? Certainly, it wasn't in the media as much as it is now. In actuality, when you look at the data, it was already an epidemic. There was some catch-up, I think, that had to happen because we were so accustomed to, for the last decade, in, in a stigmatizing way, considering fentanyl to only be a part of heroin or people who use heroin on a regular or intermittent basis. So in some ways, the stigma that we associate with that kind of drug use allowed, I'm speaking for myself, but maybe for the society, allowed us to to sort of put that out there. You know, that's not affecting me. That's not affecting 
the um, more uh, mainstream community, I guess, is what I'm saying. And, and, and that, of course, was unfortunate because that epidemic deserves just as much attention. But what happened around, you know, 2015 forward is that you started to see more and more fentanyl uh, adulterated into other substances that perhaps people would more likely use occasionally or recreationally. I'll give an example of a counterfeit Xanax pill, or maybe a, a person who occasionally does cocaine. And you started to see more and more fentanyl in the recreational drug use uh, realm, which is has some crossover, but is different than someone who's perhaps struggling with addiction to heroin. What happened within your family and how all of that brought you to taking the steps to start Birdie Light, an extraordinary act. Can you share a little bit of that journey with us? At the time of Eli's death, I was a senior in college. You know, Eli was a sophomore. From my perspective, I, I had not, no alarm bells were going off at school, at college. Um, they hadn't gone off in high school and middle school. And it was this really stark realization that there was no education around this huge, huge problem that it had now affected our family so personally. I think my mom and I felt this tremendous sense of tremendous sense of urgency because we, you know, had been affected and we were forced to realize and we knew how many people were not being forced to realize or forced to be educated around fentanyl and how to stay safe, but these deaths were just continuing to climb. So there was this moment where we, you know, knew that something had to be done. And, you know, we started Birdie Light just six months after Eli passed. And I think that was relatively soon, but I think we both felt this sense of urgency to do something about the problem um, because the deaths were not slowing down. And I mean, they, they aren't still today, but, you know, there's a big mission here. And so we're, we're just part of the solution. Beth, what's your, what's your thought on this? It's hard to look back on the six-month point after Eli died because, as we know, the brain uh, with a major trauma is not functioning always that clearly, right? And so to look back on a moment when we said, this is exactly what we need to do and how we're going to do it, it's, it's hard for me to formulate because I think uh, uh, as with any great cause, we were acting out of emotion. But one of the things that helps us, I think, is that I think Olivia is very savvy and I'm also medical. And what we knew we needed to do was to find the little tiny area or maybe big area that no one else was doing. So there are lots of people who are educating, for example, about naloxone or Narcan. There are a lot of people working in the substance use disorder space, uh, perhaps not enough, but there are a lot of people doing it. But what we could not find was anybody that was going to a middle school student or a high school student or a college student and saying, have you heard about fentanyl and what's happening? And can I tell you how to stay safe? So we got very specific with where we thought we could do the most good, or at least do the most good as it reflects upon what we might have done to save Eli. Mm -hmm. If he would have had this specific education or perhaps a tool to test what he took before he took it. 
So, you know, we were both reflecting Eli's story in our mission, but also where we felt most American children or young adults don't have any knowledge on this topic. I think we started with a great sense of emotion and justice, keeping Eli's story in mind. And, and then we just went from there and got narrower and narrower about what our mission was going to be. Birdie Light, the name evokes within me certain feelings. Tell us about the origin of the name and then the program and what you're actually doing. Essentially, it's very simple what we do if, if we speak of it in these terms is that we have knowledge, we have a curriculum, we have something to share. And so our mission is to get in front of as many young people as we possibly can with that information. Now, most of the time that comes in a event where we're speaking at a high school, a college, or on a Zoom, we'll speak to parents and healthcare providers as well. And any way that we can impart this knowledge or impart it to someone that can then impart it to young people. That's, that's essentially what we do. And we do it in a variety of formats. So for example, there's a week in January coming up where I have an event for a university in Lawrence, Kansas. That's by Zoom. I'm doing a large group of pharmacists that week by Zoom. I'm doing an in-person local Rotary Club, hoping that that will also help us gain some traction to get into that local high school. I'm speaking to a uh, university fraternity that same week. There's one other Zoom I'm trying to think, but you, you get the idea that it's a variety of events, all with the, the direct mission to impart knowledge to a group of young adults in any way we can. So that's essentially what we do. Now we have some other things in the works. I'll tell you about one briefly and then I'll let Olivia, Olivia talk about the name. We are working hard on our birdie boxes, which is a digital box that comes with a full high school curriculum as well as educational videos, uh, printable materials, et cetera. So a high school that we can't get to can get one of our birdie boxes and allow, for example, their health teacher to, to teach the curriculum or uh, you can get a physical birdie box that shows up with posters and other things and also fentanyl test strips. So it's both a digital box and a physical box. So that's our new project that we're working on at the same time that we're still speaking to um, groups all over the country. Olivia, you want to tell us about Birdie Light? So the, the choosing of the name for the organization also happened really early on. We wanted something that both represented Eli and represented what we wanted to do, which was to save, you know, more people from experiencing what we had experienced, experiencing what Eli had experienced. And we, we thought about this idea of the fentanyl test strip as a tool, a life-saving tool. And we wanted, you know, the idea of light to be involved. It was something that had really represented Eli and something we had thought about a lot since his death um, was just like the light around him and the people surrounding him. And so we thought about this idea of the canary in the coal mine, you know, going down and warning of danger. And that is almost what this fentanyl test strip does in detecting fentanyl before a drug is ingested. And we, we wanted the bird um, to represent that strip. And we knew that would be in the logo. And we knew that also Eli's friends had called him Birdie in, in middle school. It was a nickname. They called themselves the Birdies. 
So we kind of combined all of those ideas and found Birdie Light. After choosing the name and kind of finalizing the logo, we looked right in the middle of the two words and noticed that Eli's name was there. Eli is E-L-I. Right there. Yeah. 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 So there's a lot of meaning behind the name, which we love. And I, I think that the name will, will stay consistent for the foreseeable future, which is um, comforting as well. Yeah. You mentioned the fentanyl test strips. Can, can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, the test strip is a, a reagent strip that is quite similar in technology to, for example, a COVID test. The strip is designed to be dipped into a small amount of water that has a substance dissolved in the water in different ratios, somewhat, depending on what substance you're testing. Let's say, for example, you crush a pill, which perhaps could be a counterfeit pill. You crush and dissolve a pill into a small amount of water And then you put the strip end into the water and the water travels up the strip and uh, within 15 to 30 seconds will light up positive or negative for fentanyl. And then you're supposed to watch it for an additional about three minutes just to make sure of the results. Uh, So within three minutes, you have an answer as to what you're about to ingest could have fentanyl in it. The strips, as the data stands right now, are thought to be anywhere from 92 to 96% sensitive at picking up fentanyl, so not 100%. Um, And we talked to young people about some uh, additional measures, safety nets, so that we can catch those rare cases where the fentanyl test strip doesn't work. But again, 92 to 96% sensitive when you're looking at a tool and a uh, medical test is, are actually really good numbers. And I always tell people when they cast any doubt on the test strip is, you know, we have one tool right now and that's this test strip. So we're gonna use it to the best uh, of our advantage and, and use it to save lives. But it's not, uh, like someone said to me once, you know, harm reduction is never going to be harm elimination. You know, we are doing the best we can with what we have, and the test strip is the most powerful tool we have right now. Have you heard anything anecdotally from kids or adults who have used the strips and discovered fentanyl? We have a couple stories even a year ago, but most recently a young man at um, a college messaged me privately on Instagram. You know, a lot of kids follow our account and said mm-hmm. that they, he had a friend who used our strips to check cocaine and it was positive. So he threw the cocaine away. Do you get any pushback from people about the strips? I try to tell parents or school administrators um, and reassure people that this is a, a fearful topic. It's heavy and it's emotional and it's terrifying for parents to consider. And we want to be clear with them that we discourage drug use on any level, particularly in 2022, 23. This is not the time to be experimenting with drugs. And, you know, that's our first message to all young people. Don't take anything unless it's given to you by a pharmacist. But we also acknowledge that Olivia and I and our group are not going to be able to stop young people from experimenting with substances, some young people, not all young people. And we want them to be kept as safe as the kids who decide not to experiment. So we try to just reassure because I think a lot of the concerns are, of course, as a parent driven by fear. Uh, The feedback that I love, uh, I get this a lot, are parents who message me 
who say, my son, my daughter was in your assembly today and they came home and told me all about it, which has never happened before. I love that kind of feedback. We had done a high school in Manhattan by Zoom for 500 students one period, and then we did 500 more students the following period. And that went incredibly well. But the feedback we got later from teachers and from the principal was amazing. So it's always gratifying to hear uh, teachers say that the presentation sparked discussion in the classroom. Uh, And so that feedback is really helpful, too. How are you going to meet the increased demand for the program? You're a physician, Beth. You've got a job. You've got a practice. I, I do not have a job anymore. I've uh, retired perhaps temporarily so I can work full-time on that. Oh, okay. We haven't spoken in a while, so I didn't know that because I was thinking to myself, how can you possibly do all of this? We have hired two staff members. We have a part-time executive assistant. We have a part-time marketing director, and I have uh, cut back or ended my clinical practice for now. And so it is very busy, and we are just on the move, and it's great momentum. But how are we going to handle it moving forward? One of the things we are trying to focus on is really ramping up these birdie boxes so that we can be in a lot of different places at the same time and allow the message education to be shared universally. Because one of the most frustrating parts to me about this work is that I might be able to reach uh, one high school and then the high school in one zip code next door declines, you know, our offer to come and speak or or even logistically, we can't get it scheduled. So I feel like when it comes to life-saving information, it, it shouldn't be sort of a scattered effort. I feel like this needs to be very democratized and everybody needs to have access to this life-saving information. So that's what we're hoping the birdie boxes will uh, accomplish. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that we're developing in the coming years is what we are tentatively calling an ambassadorship program where we are establishing either regionally or at least on campuses, uh, an ambassador or a birdie-like club that then, you know, can continue the education, you know, every year, even when we're not able to visit. I I was just going to add on to what my mom said about, you know, expansion, because really, we really want it to become, you know, the gold standard for fentanyl education or, you know, accidental lethal drug ingestion education, um, so to speak. And I think that the more we can, you know, talk to groups of people, the more that can cascade, whether that be through an ambassador program or, you know, school education that and they conduct. But right now, you know, that means uh, my mom speaking to as many people as humanly possible and then relying on their networks to obviously continue to spread the word in education. This is a kind of problem that resembles a mountain. You've made great strides in a very short period of time. What can anybody do to raise awareness of this really significant public health problem? I think the most important thing any listener can do is to accept the fentanyl public health crisis as 
a community problem, as an American problem, as something that everybody needs to act on because the numbers beg for that kind of action. I mean, this is a public health crisis beyond what we are even accustomed to. It's surpassing, you know, the HIV and AIDS crisis, mm-hmm. you know, numbers of people in wars, you know, so we need to accept this not as an out there or not my problem crisis, but just as a community problem. And, and to that end, I think people listening need to go directly to their loved ones, their kids, their nieces, their nephews, their friend who's a high school teacher, their workplace where often young adults might be occasionally using substances or even more frequently And to just make this a commonplace conversation, to tell people about it and to make it as commonplace, uh, like I say in my presentations, as commonplace as our conversations around seatbelt use, drunk driving, uh, sunscreen, gun safety. Like this is just part of the prevention conversation now. Um, And I want everyone listening to, to just sort of own a part of that and say, well, I will, I'll talk to the people I know. So that's one part. You know, the second thing is, is to say, wait, do I know a group that needs this information? And that might be as simple as your child's high school or college group or sorority, or, you know, we, we've spoken at Hillel, we're speaking at a Hillel in Boston, you know, so we, we try to find pockets of groups that need this information. And, and so if, if a listener had that kind of connection to somebody uh, who might want us to come and spread awareness, you know, we'd love that kind of connection to be made. I think those are the main things. And of course, as always, visit our website, support Birdie Light, tell your young people in your life about Birdie Light. We would greatly appreciate it. Have you done anything in terms of public policy? Yes, mostly as it relates to decriminalization of fentanyl test strips on the state level. In Ohio, we've recently been very successful and had early conversations with a local representative about introducing a a bill at the Ohio State House to change the wording in the law that uh, places fentanyl test strips as drug paraphernalia. And so uh, through our efforts and many others, we, you know, supported that that language change, and we testified, and that was actually just this week signed by the Ohio governor into law that the test strips are no longer considered drug paraphernalia. But there are still multiple states in our country who have that on their books. It's an antiquated law, and um, there's a lot of movement to change it. So we've been working on that, having a lot of conversations around the country, um, talking with different representatives to try to get that to budge. What that does generally is it opens up more conversations about the test strips. It allows more grant funding and moves the conversation, like I mentioned previously, into more of the common arena rather than having the fentanyl conversation more in the realm of, you know, legality versus illegality and sort of out there and not relating to more of a Um, everyday community conversation. I want to thank you both, first of all, for taking the time to to speak to me and to allow us to to share the word of your good work with with our audience. Also, to thank you both for, for stepping in 
at a time of deep personal tragedy to take on this work. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. We really appreciate it.